Hello and welcome to Keanu Club, like a cool breeze over the mountains. This is episode 39, The Devil's Advocate from 1997. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And with us today, our religion expert is back, John Brooks. Hello, John. Hello. So this movie, before we dive into the real subtle hints and allusions at Paradise Lost and at John Milton, I do want to say that I love this movie. I think it works both as a like an actual kind of drama, but also as like a campy movie. I don't know how that's possible. and I'm not sure. Maybe I'm just lying to myself. I don't know, but I think it works. I, I like it genuinely as a movie and also as a movie to make fun of. It does work on those levels. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm right there with you too, guys. I, got, I mean, what, what, what would you call it? This is, I think you just said this is just labeled as a drama, but it, the word supernatural needs to be in the description somewhere because this is like a supernatural courtroom thriller. And I'm really not sure if there's quite another movie like this out there. And yeah, I totally agree that at times it's just campy and over the top. But if this didn't have any of that supernatural element or any of the religious iconography or, or any of that it's alluding to something more, like I just think it would be super flat and boring. And <laughs> maybe that they spiced it up with the devil is why the camp works. Like it's just religion is just known worldwide and these images are ingrained in our minds. So I think by adding that into a standard courtroom thing, you're, you're kind of just adding a deeper level to it and people can take it more seriously if they want to, and that's fine. Well, it's in the tradition of, like, Rosemary's Baby and movies that, that don't quite necessarily fit the horror genre, the omen, where, where they're, they're kind of psychological, supernatural thrillers. And I think it sort of is in line with that. But it's also in line with a, a kind of a tradition of you know, satanic devil morality plays, and that it just happens to kind of center it in a very modern, legal urban environment ultimately the the dynamic between you know the person and the devil as is the sort of medieval and biblical tradition i don't think is is all that much different from um sort of traditional devil stories so yeah i mean i, I think the, the the legal setting is is kind of a is a is a convenience and the the idea of it being just sort of a straight drama it's it's a it's a morality play that's that's where it fits they don't have a section for that uh on netflix but <laughs> but that really is what it is do you think that there are lawyers because people hate lawyers like is that part of the joke or is it just that lawyers sell their souls to the devil i don't know i mean i don't know if, i don't know if we're reading too much into this but it's kind of a profession that's maligned that it's one that people tend to be critical of etc well it's a, it's a tongue-in-cheek thing for sure i mean certainly the idea of you know the lawyers being evil is not avoided right in this movie i don't think they shy away from from that joke but i don't i don't think it's that simple i think i think the reality is that if you look at stories of of Satan and his temptation, it's always in the realm of some kind of occupation or some kind of desire that walks the line between morality and immorality. And and to be a lawyer requires a certain degree of amorality. If you're a defense lawyer, <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, if you're a defense lawyer and you're defending someone that you know is guilty, you know, you still have to do it. It's still part of your your civic obligation. So, in a sense, like you have to ignore morality in some way as a lawyer and that leads to murky territory and i think it's 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 great fuel for this kind of a story uh, just on the other hand like if you're a prosecutor you might not think in your heart that whoever you're prosecuting necessarily did the crime but you know that you need to it's your job to like 
put someone away for this murder or put someone away for whatever. And as long as you collar someone, you know, as long as you get somebody behind bars, you did your job. And so that's sort of, I mean, it's kind of murky on both sides, right? Right. And and one of the things that when you get into the, the nitty gritty of theology, one of the things that theologians who work within the context of a religion, so someone say a theologian within the Vatican, say, one of the the real uh, struggles that the that actual religious people have who make religious doctrine is struggling between what we call religiosity and legalism. And legalism is is the idea that you get too sort of in the murk of doctrine um, that you lose sight of morality and you lose sight of compassion and you lose sight of what the religion's really all about. And so one of the things that, for instance, Pope Francis has been sort of commended for and also criticized for is his emphasis on trying to avoid legalism, the idea that because there is a rule, it must be followed at all times, and embracing something for the spirit of the idea rather than the, the letter of the, of the law. And so I think using the idea of a courtroom drama, right, the sort of the, the area of law, and you know, using that as sort of a, a stand-in for this idea of the battle between religion and legalism is clever, even if it is overt and obvious, <laughs> as so much of this movie is. But, you know, I don't think this movie is meant to be subtle. I do think it is meant to be a very sort of traditional, broad, yes. uh, you know, <laughs> You're hiring Pacino as the devil. That is right. not subtlety. <laughs> <laughs> and you're hiring you're hiring Keanu Reeves as like the dumb, innocent, aw shucks guy. Um, there, there is right. There is no room for subtlety in this movie. But I don't think that's such a bad thing. We don't always need subtlety to make a point. Um, I think this movie makes some really interesting points and observations. And I think that's it. As Joey said, that's how it works, both as a good movie and a bad movie. Um, at the same time, there's there's a lot to like in this movie. But it's also very kind of silly and, and over the top. <laughs> Do you guys know? I know. I know everybody knows the the term "devil's advocate." I don't know that everybody knows where it comes from. Do you guys know where it comes from? No, no, actually. It actually relates to exactly what I was just saying. The devil's advocate used to be. I'm not sure if they still use it, but certainly they did in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance. The devil's advocate was a was a papal position. Um, it was an actual position within the Vatican. And what the devil's advocate would do is come up with all the reasons why something was evil. So if the Vatican was going to put forth some kind of decree or doctrine, the devil's advocate would be a sort of religious legal expert, a theologian whose task it was would would be to argue for the side of the devil so that before they went forward with some kind of new decree or doctrine in the church, they would have already sort of attacked it from the other side to make sure that it passed the the, the muster of religious piety. Well, that makes um, sense. Yeah, so when someone plays devil's advocate, you know, they're arbitrarily arguing the other side of an argument. That's literally what it is. It's not it's not a there's no analogy there. That's actually what it is to be a devil's advocate uh, in the original context. Well, what I think is kind of funny is like I love that as a name for this movie, but like I don't think that name really applies to the story. Does it? Like this story that we're watching? <laughs> No, it doesn't. No, it's, it's <laughs> no. So in terms of the plot of the movie, no. In terms of the purpose of the movie, maybe. I guess maybe at the end, if Keanu sort of had decided to follow in Pacino's footsteps, then maybe he would be the devil's advocate of sorts. Like maybe this is like a a build up to that. I, I almost take it as a mishmash. At that point, we're drawing on all the stuff between, like you said, um, the the law versus the religion and doctrine and stuff. So that the devil's advocate was an actual position, and that it argued for the devil, I think it's kind of clever, actually, that 
it's applied to Keanu because he's arguing for the devil in this movie. You know? Correct. And... Yes. Right. He is literally the devil's advocate in this movie. <laughs> right. Uh, in a way that even literal devil's advocates weren't. Yeah. That's that's that that is true. So okay, we haven't really talked about what actually happens in this movie or what it's actually really about. Mike, do you want to explain the plot as best you can? <laughs> Keanu is a undefeated defense lawyer from. Gainesville, Florida, sixty-four and zero. Yeah, and he defends horrible people, and he caught the attention of a big hotshot firm from New York City, so he's attracted there to pick a jury, and then he's asked to stay on and defend a um, a voodoo doctor, and then a murderer, and so forth and so on, until it's revealed that the man in charge of the firm, who's been his mentor, is in fact the devil. But then not only that. They take it one step further, and the devil is actually his father. And so the end, he is invited to sit next to the devil on the throne and rule the world, and decides, because he has free will, he decides not to do that and to start the whole process over again. And we're not sure we could talk about if he's caught in an infinity loop here at the end, but basically, yeah, it just seems to be that he's going to make all the wrong decisions again. So that's, that's my question, is that maybe 10 minutes into the movie... We are in the bathroom during this court scene, during this court case, and we hear sort of a thunderbolt. And that's ostensibly when the narrative splits and goes down. What we see is he goes down this path toward vanity and toward money and power and fame and glory. And all the way to the end, when he finds out, like Mike just described, that Pacino, that Satan is his father, that he's tasked to sleep with his half-sister and birth the Antichrist, you know, they're going to rule the world. And instead of going through with that, he executes free will, which we're going to have a lot to say about. Like, I don't even know if we need to talk about that much in here, because this is all like the Matrix Revolutions. Like, this is, it's crazy (laughs) how similar this is to what we're going to be talking about in a few weeks. But he kills himself, and then we revert back to that courtroom. And so instead of going down that path, he's like, I can't defend this guy anymore. He walks out of the courtroom, probably to be disbarred as a lawyer, and just sort of make it on his own with Charlize Theron in some kind of new life. But in this new reality... I mean, he's still the son of Satan, right? Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was that was a big note I had. It's like, dude, you you remember everything that just happened. You should read the writing on the wall. But like, he, you know that reporter is actually Satan in disguise. Like, you know not to fall for these tricks. And yeah, knowing what you know, you're still gonna make the same decision. Yeah, I can't remember. Does he have his? Is there any implication that he remembers what happened? Or well, he... I took it that he would, or else he wouldn't have decided to quit the case and walk out. That was the oh, whole yeah. idea. I, I thought. Well, it's either that or or just like just a premonition. The other thing where he just like has like an awakening. Like it's not really clear, and I don't know that it necessarily has to be clear. No, it that doesn't. he we see him go toward evil, and now here he just sort of has like a moment, like a realization that I should be doing good. I should not be defending pedophiles. The beginning court case, right? The girl was molested by this teacher. It's just that she lied about other kids getting molested or whatever because she didn't want to be alone. And so because she's no longer a credible witness, that gets the teacher off. Like, that is all questionable ethics and questionable law there, too. And I'm sure those are some of the many law questions that Mike has in his notebook. The only reason I took it to be real was because the reporter morphs into Pacino at the end. Like, if they had ended it before yes. that shot, I'd be like, okay, he just 
did have a premonition like it was all in his head while he was in the bathroom you know trying to decide what to do but i feel like because they end on that gag or that extra little button it's to say no i got him again you know it's (laughs) it's just a it's just gonna be a different road but it's gonna end at the same destination you sort of get the sense that, that the reporter wants to tell this guy's story. He wants to tell Keanu's story, craft the narrative that Keanu wants to craft, and not just talk about how he's going to be this disbarred lawyer, but twist it in a new way. You get the sense that this reporter is going to stick around with Keanu. Even though Keanu drives away, he seems very interested in telling Keanu's story. And so if Keanu even gives in to seemingly like this benevolent reporter, he's actually still letting the devil in his life again. So even though he drives away at the end of the movie, he's not really escaping evil. So I I think one of the readings of this movie is the notion of whether or not if you're born the son of the devil, <laughs> you, you really, you truly can have free will, if that's possible, or if, you know, if, if there's certain natures that cannot be nurtured, do you know what I mean? So, like, yes. it, human beings can, you know, the nature-nurture thing can, can work um, hand in hand, but if you're the son of the devil, is the nature such that nurture cannot have any influence? And I think this goes back a little bit to what I was saying about the, the whole idea of working within the legal system. If you are a defense attorney, can morality even play a role? Is, is, it, is it even possible to be a morally upstanding defense attorney or prosecutor? Can you work within that system and hold on to a sense of ethics or, and morality, or is that all just an illusion and a joke? Because if you are a truly moral and good lawyer, it means that you're going to be arguing and essentially lying about, often or occasionally, people who are immoral unethical, indefensible people, does the fact of the way the legal system works just sort of wipe out any real sense of morality in the same way that if the devil were to have a child, would that child ever be able to choose to be good by virtue of the fact that it's the child of the devil? I, I think that's kind of maybe the, the, the central theme of the movie. That's that's what I've always taken away from it anyway. And it's it's interesting because one of the things I do like about this movie a lot is I think it gets what the kind of root sort of devil lore really is all about. I feel like a lot of movies and a lot of just literature and and fiction and sort of pop mythos in general kind of takes the devil and turns the devil into this this like all-powerful evil doing anarchist that just you know that just like lo- likes to just like hurt people and and blow things up and you know cause havoc. The devil in the biblical sense is always more like the kind of character that the devil's advocate is to the Vatican. It's someone who is trying to disrupt on a very personal level and trying to find the weaknesses of humanity and exploit them. Like for fun or for, to what end? For power. I mean, to, okay. to, to basically find the, the chinks in God's armor and, and exploit them for his own ends. But not in the way of like... Like an end of days, right? <laughs> like the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Not in the like the all-powerful just causing chaos kind of way, but sort of using the inherent hypocrisies of the system, in this case humanity, against itself in order to sort of enhance his own power and his own standing. And I really like that about this movie, that it's like the, it's the only sort of recent, I think, kind of devil movie that, that does that really well. I think some other 
like I think the TV show Lucifer is actually pretty good at doing that as well, at sort of exploiting that element of the devil and Satan in general. But in terms of like the way that this movie plays out, it really is very similar to the way that the devil is presented in the Bible, as opposed to the way the devil sort of developed over the course of the Middle Ages, and ultimately to the point where we get to things like Paradise Lost and Dante's Inferno and that sort of thing, where it's like the devil is just far more the incarnation of evil as a chaotic force as opposed to someone who stands in the way of human goodness or exploits its inherent illogic the way that it does in this movie. So, you know, I think Keanu can't be good. (laughs) And I I think the idea is that a lawyer cannot be a good lawyer. It is just not possible, right? There is no such thing as a good lawyer because goodness doesn't exist in that world, which I think is really interesting. And no disrespect to lawyers for whom I have a great great deal of, of respect, but, you know, it... It really is true. You cannot go into being a lawyer with a sense of genuine morality and ethics because it won't work uh, if you do. Do you think that they're alluding at the end there, too, is that just because he's not a lawyer, it's like that sense of not being a moral person has corrupted him to the core in the point where even though he's like, okay, at least I'm not a lawyer, but it's like, no, whatever line of business he's going to go into next, he'll elevate in that field to the point that he would have as a lawyer because of his lack of morals, because it's just bled into his life in general. I, I, I don't know. I almost read that a little bit at the end like he can't even see it too it gets to the point where he's blinded by that and it's just like he's on autopilot and it's his fate perhaps yeah it's interesting i'm not really quite sure where this movie wants to stand when it comes to the fate versus free will argument i think that's a perfectly reasonable argument to make the one that you the one that you just made but i i guess yeah at the end of the day the thing that bothers me the most about this movie is the ending <laughs> because i do think it's and it seems, I don't know, Joey, it seems like you, you like the ending, but like some ambiguity is good, but I'm not quite sure if it serves the story of the movie well to have that much ambiguity. I want a I little bit more. I don't know if I like the very, very end. I really love that scene leading up to the snapback to reality. I think that the ending is very Hollywood. It's like, hey, like, we got you. Like, Pacino's still here. But I, don't, I also don't know another ending that would work better. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I guess that's true. Yeah, it's the fun ending, right? I'm sure they tested a bunch of endings, you know, ones where he just walks out of the courtroom and you see them get in a car and drive away. One where he talks to the reporter and he denies him. And then, (laughs) you know, even one where he talks to the reporter and he doesn't morph into the devil at the end. Like, I'm sure they went every direction possible and they're like, okay, this is going to have people leaving the theater on an upbeat note and like, okay, like (laughs) a nice, fun little twist. Like, I almost take it more as a gag as opposed to how they really wanted to end the movie because it would have probably been a stronger movie without that little extra, you know, few seconds, but it's definitely more fun because of it. (laughs) So this movie is based on a book called The Devil's Advocate, but it obviously draws very heavily from the Bible, but also from Paradise Lost, where it's not so, you know, subtly hidden that Pacino's name in this movie is John Milton, and John Milton's the guy who wrote Paradise Lost. And Paradise Lost, I haven't read, my, my knowledge is vague, but it's about a guy's fall from God's grace, right? He just sort of goes from good to evil. John, you can explain. I'm I'm very excited to learn a lot about Paradise Lost, but I think that what this movie tries to do, aside from just the story it tells, is that they want to use color palette in a way that is really interesting. And I got the sense really early on that they were going to do this. And so I was trying to pay attention and compare this to a show like Breaking Bad that very 
decidedly chooses colors. Like, every character is a color, and Walt goes from green to black over the years, and there's very conscious decisions as to why colors are the way they are. In this movie, they want to do something like that, but really only what winds up happening is that Keanu has a gray suit in the beginning and a black suit at the end. And so he goes from maybe not good, but neutral to evil. The only other color thing that really pops up at all is when Charlize is trying to paint her apartment and she's painting all these different greens and that woman from across the hall is always wearing a color that's the same green. But like, I don't know what that means. That's supposed to be making a point, <laughs> I think, but I don't understand what that point is. And I feel like that's kind of this movie, a way that sort of admire it as both good and really bad. It's, hey, we're trying to do something here, but ultimately we have no idea how to execute it. Yeah, I think that's probably my frustration with the movie, too, is that it's <laughs> <laughs> it's that it's um, it's kind of like a, re- a bunch of really, really great ideas and great moments that are trapped in kind of a movie that never is quite as good as it should be. But anyway, you, you brought up a lot of stuff there, so I'm going to try and I sure um, did. see if I can address as much of it as possible. Paradise so, Lost yes. itself is, is an epic poem that is about, essentially, Lucifer's fall from grace and mankind's fall from grace. Paradise Lost takes for granted the idea that the serpent in the Garden of Eden is is Satan. And that's actually never clear in traditional theology. That has never really been established that the serpent in the tree is the devil. And I, I think a lot of credible theologians would say that that's not was never really the intention. That's never really the case. But one of the things that makes Paradise Lost so interesting is that in addition to Dante's Inferno, Paradise Lost and Dante's Inferno and and also Purgatory and, and Paradise are the two bodies of work that have created, I would say, that have had more influence on Christianity than any other work aside from the Bible. And in fact, most of what people think about when it comes to the imagery of heaven and hell and so forth comes entirely from those two works and not from the Bible. The Bible has nothing about hell. There is nothing in in the Bible about Satan being the ruler of hell and Beelzebub and any of that stuff, right? That's all Dante and that's all Milton. The Bible also says almost nothing about heaven either. All of that stuff was blanks that were filled in over the course of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. So certainly Paradise Lost gave rise to a lot of the popular imagery of the devil turning him into someone, you know, kind of like Al Pacino. But this idea of a very kind of initially kind of well-meaning human being that was flawed beyond redemption and so accepts his nature and goes to work on his nature in the in the only ways he knows how. He is essentially left with no choice but to poke at God and try to undermine humanity whenever and however he can. In fact, the word demon comes from, uh, its Latin origin means basically just uh, a doer, a thing that does stuff. And the word got associated with the agents of hell in the Middle Ages because it was believed and sort of... Uh, over the course of the plagues and the Dark Ages, when the idea of the devil being active in the world was very popular, it was believed that essentially the devil did work through his minions, through his demons, in a way that was a lot less broad-sweeping agenda and more individuals sort of playing around with the lives of people. So, again, one of the things I really like about this movie is that it goes back to that basic idea of devilry and demonic work, in that it's he chooses this one guy, who also happens to be his son, I guess, but 
for the majority of the movie, you're you're under the impression that this one guy is being, for whatever reason, groomed or or messed with, right, by uh, this master manipulator to create some sort of catastrophic end. So, in that sense, the allusion to Milton and, in some levels, the allusion to Dante as well is is that it embraces that notion of what the devil is and how the devil works. In terms of the color schemes, you know, that's really interesting because you know, there's obviously there's a lot of as depictions of the devil in the Middle Ages became more prevalent, you had these sort of these agrarian ideas that were being thrown in. So the the color of blood and the color of fire, and so the devil being red is probably associated with that. Again, there's no allusions to what color the devil is in the Bible, but obviously there's there's an association with black and red as as colors of evil because of darkness and blood and fire and so forth. And you definitely see a lot of that, <laughs> right, in in the movie. He's actually blue in this. When we do get the one glimpse of Pacino as like a demonic form, he's blue for a moment. Yeah, but the the whole like his whole. Uh, yes, his office, penthouse, with the, right? Enormous right. fireplace, and his daughter with the red dress on and the red hair and everything. Right, right. So just a lot of that, a lot of that black and red is there. The, well, the is there green... any reasoning to him being blue? Is that like due to like a different cultural interpretation of the devil or another? Well, there's there's manuscript? the blue devil. Yeah, there's. I'd have to look that up. Certainly there's an association with blue and the devil. I'm not sure what it is. But the blue devil thing is, is, is a thing. But, yeah, I mean, if you look at medieval artwork, you know, it's always... The demons are always in these very kind of stark colors. Not to say bright, but bold. So, like, you know, bold reds and greens and blacks and blues, while the poor, you know, suffering, pious Christians are always in very sort of earthy tones. I guess based on that, is everybody in this movie, I guess everybody in this movie is a demon in the original definition in that they're doers for Pacino. Right. But are they all human? Is the guy who brings him in, who comes down to Florida to recruit him, he and his wife live across the hall, yeah. are they human or are they like more than human? Yeah, I don't think they're, I, I think they're agents of hell. I don't think they're, they're meant to be fully human. And I think it was always understood that the minions of hell were not human beings, that they were disguised as human beings. The thing about, like, you know, the witch trials, like, witch hunting hysteria, the ideas of, like, vampires in the, in, the, in the Middle Ages, there was always an idea that these people were posing as human beings. They, they were never fully human. They were presenting themselves as being human, but were, in fact, something else. Okay. You see a lot of that referenced in The Witch, which I know is one of your favorite recent movies. It is. Um, but this idea that there's a line between a fully human person and, a, and, a, and an agent of hell, and in some capacity those agents are not really human beings, they're just posing as human beings. So, yeah, I, it, again, that's it's a pretty traditional motif, and I think you're supposed to read that as those are not real people, and that all the people working for him are in some way not quote-unquote real people. So then, um, is there a link between... Uh, maybe this is just another layer that they add to the movie to give Charlize something to do, but she becomes schizophrenic in this movie. And one thing that I read, which was kind of funny, that, Mike, we've seen a lot, like what Shia did and Cage did, and Keanu's done a little bit, where the actors, like, prep for their roles by going to do things. So he went and hung out with attorneys. She spent an hour a day with a psychiatrist during the entire three-month shoot about how to give off the vibe that she's schizophrenic. So she went, like all out, really invested, maybe deeper into that kind of preparation than anybody we've seen or talked about so far. I don't like it here, Kevin. These women, my God, I mean, I'm seeing things for Christ's sake. You just left them in the store. Yes! Look, calm down. No! Listen to me. No! Mayor! Mayor! Kevin, I'll never see you anymore. 
And now that you've got this big case, it's just only gonna get worse. If you can believe it, I'm actually looking forward to having your mother come and visit. What about the apartment? God damn you! Why do you always have to go and change things around? This is not about the apartment. I hate this stupid place! You know, you buy a couple of new suits and you're fine. It's a little more than that, Mayor. I have this whole fucking place to fill! And I know we've got all this money and it's supposed to be fun, but it's not. It's like a test. The whole thing is like one big test. And God. But in terms of bringing like a mortal into the world of hell, is there anything religiously affiliated with schizophrenia? Or is that just her, like just kind of a natural, like, oh, her mind can't really comprehend the level of evil that's around her and so she's just she ha she's seeing these people for what they are yeah so i think again one of the things you're supposed to sort of read this movie as is a modern set medieval morality play about you know the devil and his work within the world and certainly if you were a schizophrenic in the 12th century you would have been thought to be possessed by the devil so you know the idea of schizophrenia while it's a diagnosable disease now um we didn't know what caused psychological ailments a thousand years ago and the assumption would always have been demonic possession and, and that that would be true for any disease or, or any enduring disease so while something like the plague was god's wrath against mankind the things that were not sort of common so so like one of the things that would happen is if you survived the plague right if you were like unfortunate enough to survive the plague um, among a bunch of religious zealots, there's a good chance you would be accused of either vampiry or witchcraft because they didn't understand the way that like antibodies worked and you know the way that you may have developed an immunist to it because maybe you got the plague when you were a kid and there was another wave of it 20 years later and then somehow you survived and nobody else did and you know and so there's a hysteria right in the Middle Ages sure, about sure. about why are you not sick. Um, <laughs> So it's like, it's God's wrath is if you get something that other people get, right? If you die from the plague, that's God's wrath. But if somehow you survive the plague, then you're a witch or, or a vampire. Or if you have some kind of weird ailment, something like schizophrenia or like multiple personality disorder or something like that, which certainly would have existed in the Middle Ages, but nobody would have known why. So I think that's just a reference, a nod to this idea of demonic possession, which we now know isn't the case, but it plays nicely for the purposes of the movie <laughs> uh, in this case that, you know, that's that's what's going on so the devil's doing his work on poor Charlie's Poor Charlie's, which she and will return. By the way, return. gets really screwed in this movie. Really screwed in this movie. Yes, and she will return in Sweet November, so I, ho I haven't seen that movie, but I hope that she and Keanu's relationship goes a little bit better than it does in this movie. Uh, <laughs> it does, it does. Okay, okay, good. One thing I wanted to ask you guys is, mm -hmm. is in terms of, I have my own kind of view on this, in, in terms of like the, the whole canon of devil movies in general, which I'm sure you've seen quite a few of them, where do you rank this one among the, the great <laughs> the, the, the great devil movies of all time. I'm going to Google movies about the devil. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't do that. I feel like as far as like modern interpretation and all that, it's 
probably the best I've seen recently. Like, that's the thing. Like, I can't think of another movie that has tried to do this in this type of way. I almost take it as, like, when people adapt Shakespeare and set it in modern times instead of, you know, back in the past. And, like, that's what this feels like to me. And it's, I like that. That's what's, like, kind of smart about it. And, like, you're revealing, you know, with, like, the schizophrenia, for instance. Like, I wasn't aware of that. And it's, it's just another nod. Like, the movie's kind of smarter than people are giving it credit for because they're not well-versed in the history of religion so much. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall, I don't know that it's quite on the level of, say, like, Rosemary's Baby. Like, I feel like that is just way more personal. I just like how it's sort of more claustrophobic. It's it's tough to say. I definitely feel, though, that there hasn't been a movie like this recently that I can think of that I've enjoyed. And I go all the way back to, like, silent films and black and white, like, Faust and sure from way yeah. back yeah, yeah. and stuff too yep. so i mean it, it definitely holds its own amongst the genre but i mean is it quite the omen i don't know i just like those a little more because they're just more mysterious like one well, thing they're about better this... movies as well. I mean, like, well yes they objectively are. they're better movies <laughs> one thing i kind of wish there was a little less of is when they have like the little cgi transformations and like invisible people chasing jeffrey jones in the park <laughs> like yeah. i almost wish it was just more alluding to that he's the devil until the very end when you're in his office and literally you know all hell breaks loose up there you know and they played a little more coy but other than that i think it's up there i agree that with mike and i think john too that like this is one of the better recent adaptations rosemary's baby is up there the exorcist is up there those kind of movies but like in the last 15 20 years like within the span of keanu club like since keanu became an actor i can't think of many more or any more really that i like as much as this but what i really find fascinating about keanu as an actor like we've already sort of begun to dive into when we did little buddha but we're really going to dive into headfirst over the next eight years of keanu's career is his I don't want to call it an obsession, but maybe his fascination with or an interest in religion. <laughs> that aside from this movie, aside from the Matrix series, John will also be coming back for Constantine, which we just talked about for Shia for all his movies. And that's very demonic, Satan, fallen angel, all influenced as well. And so I like that Keanu, more so really than any other mainstream actor, wants to explore these stories and wants to make these stories about religion and the devil mainstream and bringing them to the people and sort of in a way either educating or pointing a finger toward hey if you like this well you could check these things out like if you like the devil's advocate hey here's a book here's an epic poem paradise lost that you might want to read and so i think that's really interesting and commendable to an extent and i'm really excited to see because when we did Constantine for Shia, we sort of ignored the entire Keanu part because we knew that we were going to be tackling it again in just a couple months. And so I want to dive back into that movie in terms of the religion sense and the fallen angel sense and really see how much of that has a comparison to this and relates to this and so on and so forth. I just want to say that I think Mike's analogy to sort of Shakespeare set in a modern setting is is right on. I think that's kind of what I was getting at when I introduced my thoughts on it, is that I think that's exactly right, that what you have is a very timeless story that plays with the very notions of what is human nature and what is morality done in a very modern kind of setting. And again, yeah, I think it is not the 
best constructed movie. I totally agree with the criticism that I think it, if they'd been more coy with the whole devil stuff, <laughs> it would have been more effective. The the splashy kind of obvious stuff, the the meat chewing of Al Pacino is kind of unavoidable when it's Al Pacino. You'd be wasting Al Pacino if you didn't like <laughs> overdo it to some extent. But I think it works best when it really plays with the subtleties, and I and I think it does that in various points very well. And I think it works worst when it tries to be sort of overly entertaining and sensationalist. I think that's what people love about Rosemary's Baby is that it is just so, it is very personal and it's so effective that way. You know, I I love that there's been a kind of revival, it seems almost like, in devil lore that it is getting back to more of that sort of thing. And the TV series Lucifer, you know, that series, which I really, really enjoy because it's so rooted in that idea of like the devil as someone who just needles with humanity and and just toys with it and screws with it and like i you know i think that's just so much more compelling a narrative uh, than what we typically see with the you know the all-powerful devil like in south park who <laughs> is like you know can make chaos reign one of my favorite i just have to say this because i, I want to pitch a couple things and i just recommend a couple things if people get a chance there was a really great series in like the late 90s on fox that lasted one season called brimstone that very few people have seen and it's about a cop who goes to hell and makes a deal with the devil that he can be freed from hell if he goes back to earth and hunts down these demons i think it's like get, he has to get like a hundred demons or something 113 like that. 113 spirits which i love that when they pitched like guys we got 113 stories it's gonna last for five seasons we're gonna have 22 a season and at the end there's gonna be a twist and then they just get canceled after one year but the reason I bring it up is that like one of my very favorite devil scenes of all time is in that show. And so what used to happen was that the devil would occasionally visit him in his apartment and like they would chat about his most recent mission, you know. And so there's this one scene where the guy the cop the guy who played the cop is Peter Horton. I can't remember who played the devil. He was really John good. John Glover? Well, who was it? John Glover? John Glover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so 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 John Glover is like sitting in his living room while while Peter Horton's like making coffee and they're talking and he's got this book on the coffee table and the devil's like you reading I can't remember what the book was, but the devil's like you reading this book and he's like he's like yeah, I'm really, you know, it's and and they're just chatting about the book and Peter Horton's character is saying how much, you know, how good it is or whatever and just like as they're talking what you just see is the devil take the last page out of the book, rip it out, and put it in his coat. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's just one of those great, like, that is, that totally nails down the real essence of the whole lore That's awesome. uh, of Satan as just someone who is just, you know, the, the demonic, just screwing with people. Just a um, dick. Just <laughs> completely. But, like, wouldn't even think twice. Like, this is obviously what I'm going to do here is take this book this guy's enjoying and, like, rip the last page out so he doesn't know what happens in the end. And the other thing that I would recommend is a great book called I, Lucifer, which if you like The Devil's Advocate and, and just sort of like this whole notion of the devil, I, Lucifer is a fantastic book. By Glenn um, Duncan? Glenn Duncan, yeah. And it's about a author named Declan Gunn, which is an anagram of Glenn Duncan, who <laughs> is suffering from writer's block and so the devil takes over his body the devil basically goes on a vacation as this as this writer and he completely like revamps this guy's writing career <laughs> it's he ends up getting like this movie deal but it's great because it's just like it's like an internal monologue of the devil the entire way through and it's really really funny but it's also really clever and it brings up a lot of great theological ideas and one of them that he keeps getting back to is is 
that he keeps being blamed for the crucifixion of Jesus. And he's like, I did, I was not responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. That doesn't make any sense. He's like, the crucifixion of Jesus saved mankind. I don't want mankind to be saved. Why would I want Jesus to be crucified? Like, I tried to stop it. And he goes into, like, detail about how he tried to stop it from happening in the first place. It's, it's really, really good. And I know that's a work that they've tried to turn into a movie for a long time to no avail. But it's a good, quick, entertaining read. For anybody who likes this movie, I would, I would definitely recommend recommend that book. So two things that I wanted to comment on that you mentioned a while ago before you did the recommendations is that you said you can't have Pacino in this movie and then not use him as Pacino. Right. He apparently turned this movie down five times. Wow. <laughs> they must have backed up the money truck at one point. They must have sent the devil in to cut him a deal he couldn't refuse. Because apparently at one point it was way more CGI heavy and like more like a blockbuster. Oh, interesting. Which would be a very different movie, I think, and he didn't like that. And so the the screenwriter, who one of the two screenwriters, one of the co-writers, I don't know if it was this guy or the other guy, but the one guy is who wrote all the Bourne movies, he's also writing Rogue One, so kind of a big deal. But he did a couple rewrites and re-offered it to Pacino, and I guess he was more open to it, but didn't think he could do it, and he said, you should hire Sean Connery or Robert Redford instead. Can you imagine Robert Redford as the devil? I can, because I, 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 I think Robert Redford does a very good two-faced... What about Sean Connery? Sean Connery, no. <laughs> Robert Redford, yes. If you look at like Robert Redford in The Winter Soldier, like if you if you look at that character, oh okay, um, I could, that's he's good at that. But no, this is totally. I mean, it's Pacino or nothing. I mean, yeah. To see Pacino as the devil is, you gotta have that. But I think that's really interesting that he didn't like the CGI elements, because I think that's what we were talking about before, that the movie's at its best when it's at its barest, right? When it's yeah. not when it's not going all CGI. Having said that, like, the imagery towards the end when things do start getting hellish is really cool. Um, <laughs> it's, and it's really, really well done, but it, it probably is the weakest part of the movie. So it's interesting that Pacino would, you know, think that that would weigh the movie down, and he's probably, he's probably right. The other thing real quick that I wanted to say was that one thing that I think worked really well that we were talking about, like alluding to him being the devil, is that early on in the movie when Keanu visits his mother at church to say, hey, we're moving to New York, you know, I got this new gig, and he says that he's on parole from church. Uh, or that, you know, after, I guess he's talking to, I don't know, he's not talking to her, he's talking to somebody else, maybe to Pacino, but he's on parole for time served. And so I like that idea of it's a punishment <laughs> for him uh -huh, to uh -huh. be in jail. Like, you know, he had this life sentence or whatever, but basically let out for good behavior or time served. Yeah. Uh, I, I like that idea. That's that's a kind of like a little subtle nod that works well. I don't well, think I, think. I ever even noticed that, but yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Mike, do you yeah. have anything? I mean, there's still a lot. I'm, I have four pages of notes, and I'm just scrolling through slowly. Yeah, we haven't even really touched upon the Keanu character, but, I mean, just to put maybe my thoughts about Pacino to sleep is, like, I kind of felt the way that this devil character ended up, I almost feel like anyone of A-level stature at the time could have played him. Like, De Niro would have been good, you know? Like, I feel like the way he's written as sort of this street-level devil demon guy that likes to, like, ride the subways and talk to the local merchants, like, he's very... Like he says later, like he's a fan of man, right? Like he's a people person. Like he knows, <laughs> you know, he likes to get down in the streets and get to know his fellow person and stuff. And I don't know. I just like that depiction of the devil, you know, as someone who gets humanity, understands reality, can relate to you like on any level. Just thought that was interesting. And like, I think that Pacino definitely brings his Pacino-ness to it. And that works extremely well. But like, yeah, I feel like any high caliber actor at the time really could have sank their teeth into this role. 
but also seeing what he did on screen. Like, I agree, but seeing what he did on screen, I can't imagine anybody else. Like, this movie is these two guys, and that's it. You know what else is amazing is they look related, uh, Pacino and Keanu, to me. They do. Like, when they're yeah. next to each other. I mean, maybe because they just have slick black hair and, you know, <laughs> kind of the same yeah. <laughs> sort of features. But to me, they weren't hiding that relation so much. Like, it was out there, but at the first time I saw it, I was kind of like, oh, well, there's a twist. They're... That's his son, okay? Well, raises what... some more questions about the mother, why there was, you know, what's going on with her and, like, what she represents, too. But, yeah, that, that to me worked as a twist the first time, and now when I watch it, it it's sort of like a, um, like a clue or something. Like, look how much they look alike. I, I guess I just want to say to, to what Mike says about Pacino playing this role, I, I, I don't, I think given the, the setting of the movie, the way that they go about telling the story, I don't think anybody else would work. And the reason is that for a lot of what you, what you actually, what you say, there's basically two kind of characteristics of the devil. There's, and they're, and they're, they're not really compatible with each other. There's this sort of hype that, you know, the, the Lord of hell, right? The, the high ruler who is like second only to God in power and the scrappy, Needler who really gets into like human affairs and interferes and like pushes buttons. And I think because it's New York, that Pacino, you know, you can buy in the New York setting as like a high powered, really rich lawyer and also like the guy on the subway, right, who's just kind of like talking smack or, you know, just like shooting the shit with people. I think that Pacino has both of those like New York characteristics that just work so well with the two different kind of versions of the devil or the two different sort of manifestations of the devil that we I see. I like that. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a strong point. I couldn't see Sean Connery, you know, no. looking out his, <laughs> his Spanish or anything. Jesus. tragedy. So that subway scene, I was going to make a comparison to another movie that we just watched as a joke, but the more I think about it, the more I think those films kind of are related, that the Wall Street series... You can sort of make a comparison to this. Like, we have Gordon Gecko kind of as the devil of mm-hmm. sorts. Oh, sure. And you have either Charlie Sheen or Shia in the new one. But what we, we talked about when we watched Money Never Sleeps, how they had Michael Douglas on the subway to just basically be like, hey, can you believe Gordon Gecko is on the subway? Like, look at this guy. But in this movie, I feel like the only reason they're on the subway is for one specific reason, but it's just so that Pacino can, like, kind of screw with that guy, and the guy pulls, like, a box cutter on him whenever he's just like, hey, there's a better place for you to stick that, like, the moment you left, your wife was upstairs with Carlos, smoking crack, and now he's doing her up the ass. And, like, that's the only reason, I think, because there's no reason, because they're, essentially, money is literally nothing to them. Like, they, they have unlimited money so there's no reason for them to be on the subway other than just to have that moment and so i think that's funny that like we have these two subway scenes in these two movies we talked about in the last couple of weeks but at the same time it works really well and it works better than it did in wall street even if you can kind of make the comparison of gordon gecko to pacino here like this is a great scene in that movie it was just like oh god like i can't like this there's no there's no point here other than like a a wink like look how far he's fallen yeah, yeah, I agree. In fact, I was thinking Wall Street a lot while watching this and how strong the first one was and made its point so much better and how weak the second one was and just couldn't even keep itself together. And Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a great point. And obviously Gordon Gecko is, is not ambiguously the devil. I mean, like, yeah, of course, that's exactly, you know, that's 
it is a it is a modern devil story as well without the pomp and circumstance. I'm wondering what you now think then of the idea that Mike Bloomberg rode the subway to work every day when he was mayor. Well, that's you... that's he's a, he's a man of the people. That's a, there's a difference there. Like Pacino <laughs> owns this building. I mean, obviously it's a gorgeous apartment. And that one guy, that other lawyer, I think Eddie, the guy who gets killed by the invisible demons who turn out to be homeless people or they get masked as homeless people, whatever, that he's so jealous of this apartment that Keanu's in, but Keanu's on the third floor and it's like a 20 floor building. And so it's a great apartment, but in the hierarchy of the building, it's not that great. So I think that's also like a funny, not like a joke, but uh, like Keanu still has so much more to ascend in the world of hell, I guess. Because it seems like this whole building is for that law firm. Yeah. But I don't know if that's true or not, because that seems crazy. I think that's the that's the implication. And and, and I think the levels of hell thing is, is the analogy going on okay. there. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so he's in the third level. He's stuck right. there for a while. Interesting. Right. Right, because Inferno talks about the different layers of hell as descending scale towards pure and total evil, and that the lower you are, obviously, the more evil you were or are. In this case, it would be like the higher you are, you know, in the penthouse apartment is the central circle of hell. But I think that's the the analogy that they're going for there, even if they don't say explicitly that the entire building is dedicated to this one quote unquote law firm. So I think I I want to talk about Keanu as the character because Mike mentioned that we hadn't like you know we've been recording almost an hour and we haven't actually talked about Keanu who he is I do think that lawyer Keanu is kind of the best Keanu like I love FBI agent like I love him in positions of power you know in Point Break and in Speed he's like law enforcement here he's a lawyer that as a defense lawyer he's kind of against the criminal justice system but I like that he's in those roles but what I also really genuinely love about his character is his southern accent that comes and goes you know as the wind picks up and just his way like there's one line it's when he walks in on Charlie's getting ready for the party, and he's just like, oh, baby. Mayor, what happened to the green? I love the green. Honey, you're late. We're due up at the Barzoon's Palace in 15 minutes. What's all this? All what? Jackie says the who's who of New York Power is going to be there tonight. All this? Oh, that? It was going to be a nursery? Then I remembered you have to be home long enough to knock me up, so now I'm thinking of building a law library. Oh, baby. And, like, he says, like, there's no, he's so, he's such a southern boy in that moment that I just, I love that southern, like, I'll just say certain lines, like, you could could say that as a criticism, but I think it just, it works somehow. He's definitely pulling it off better than Tune In Tomorrow, where, you know, it was basically willy-nilly, do whatever accent you want. But I was surprised coming back, I mean, especially getting to this point through Keanu Club, I feel like this is one of his best performances. I feel like he really understands and embodies this character in a way. I mean, maybe it's because the character thinks he's doing all of this on his own, but in reality, someone else is pulling all the strings. So in that way, he's got like this clueless confidence about him that comes off the screen for me. And I also loved him wearing glasses. I think that was a first that we got. Him in glasses... Yeah, it was a good look for him. And you're definitely right. Like, Lawyer Keanu is good. And Lawyer Keanu will be coming back in many, many movies for him, right? <laughs> I think one that was just released, he plays a lawyer again. Oh, so. The Whole Truth. Yeah, that, the that whole Chinese truth. movie or something. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm just calling it the Chinese lawyer movie because I don't know anything more about it. 
interesting. I, I've never heard of it. Yeah, I agree. I think this. I think he's very good in this movie for the same reason that you know I think he was good in Little Buddha. A that he does very well. I think when it's a topic that interests him, and I think it's pretty clear that he has a great interest in these sort of philosophical, religious ideas. And B because you know there's there's just so much scenery being chewed by Pacino here that Keanu is able to kind of be our grounding <laughs> right <laughs> in a way and that it tends to work pretty well for him too right? it's a similar kind of thing to why it works so well in speed because he just has this kind of cool confidence around him while all of these really like you know Dennis Hopper is is a scenery chewer in the same way that Al Pacino is and in a, in, in a certain sense, so is like uh, Jeff Daniels, you know, and and he just like he just does really he's really great when he is not necessarily has to carry the whole movie, but is is able to be that sort of calming presence, <laughs> I guess you might say, to actors that are around him that are obviously trying to capture all of the attention in every scene that they're in. So yeah, I think everything about this movie kind of plays to his strengths, and and it's a great it's a great Keanu movie for sure. I mean, for me, what really sells it, and it comes really late, like I'm really thinking like he's doing a great job, but when Charlize commits suicide and he's like holding her and the way that he's crying and emoting there, I was like, wow, like that feels like real to me. So like it was pretty much after that, when it goes bonkers, um, I was ready for it, you know, and I feel like I feel like I got that emotional climax I needed there in that moment so that the rest of the movie can play with me and pull its little tricks about the devil and all that kind of stuff coming up. It's going to tread into far less serious territory after that. I think it says something too that it's probably like in the top 10 Keanu movies and not in the top 20 Al Pacino movies. So... Like, if they're both to look back on their careers, I think Keanu would be like, that was a highlight. And Pacino would be like, yeah, that was a good paycheck. I had I had fun being the devil making money. <laughs> so I have a question, and I'm sure that there is a reason for this. I'm sure that there's, like, a basis in literature or spirituality, religion. Maybe it, it also might just be my facial blindness, kind of. But Charlize and Pacino's daughter, the Italian lawyer, look very similar, right? Before, at least before yeah. she does her hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so... There's that scene where Keanu and Charlize start sipping Miss McGill's tea or having tea with Miss McGill, and she transforms into the lawyer, and Keanu gets, like, really into it, and he kind of starts doing things, I guess, that are a little bit different from how they normally do it, and Charlize is like, this is, you're something different, like, we gotta stop here. But in terms of the doppelgangery, you know, same color hair, same hairstyle, until Pacino basically says, hey, change your hair, like, not that there's anything wrong with it, but you know, you could be doing something better. There's got to be some kind of religious or literature basis for, like, doppelgangers and temptation? Does that find its way into, like, the narrative of Satan or the devil in terms of doubles, in terms of anything like that? I can't think of what a specific reference would be, but certainly the idea of the seductress and of, you know, the, the whole, like, covetousness as a essential sin in the Judeo-Christian tradition from which all this lore comes, I, I think is is pretty standard stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if it's a specific reference to any particular story. You know, the idea of, like, the succubus, right, 
is yes, is, yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is directly tied into kind of devilish demonic lore. I think that's what's being referenced here. But yeah, I, like it's I think it's just the way it specifically plays out in this movie is a way of trying to visually explore the notion of like covetousness that one of the frail human temptations is to take something you have and want it to be better right in 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 some sort of way like when they move to new york his wife who is this you know model-esque wife in his small town life becomes somewhat plain and boring right and so she sort of doesn't quite work in that world and so that's you know that just sort of I think plays into the grander narrative of what's going on of this kind of guy who's in over his head story and the idea that when you want too much <laughs> right, is, is when you start giving into, into that temptation. So I think it's just a way of kind of visualizing that idea that as soon as they move to New York City, she goes from being like a 10 to a 5, you know what I mean? Yeah, so I don't think it's necessarily a doppelganger idea so much as it is like a, a, a way A new and improved Charlize? Which also, like movie go screw like Charlize is beautiful like I love I love these worlds and like we, we've seen a lot on Zack Attack we've seen in a couple other movies that we've done across other podcasts but I get that she's sort of small townish and hickish a little bit and in over her head but she's still Charlize Theron she's still gorgeous and I just think it's so funny when movies are like oh look at this beautiful person she's not beautiful enough for this world it's such like it's not meant to be a joke in this but it's it you can't help but think it's a little bit funny it is <laughs> yeah obviously I and mean, she's one of the most and she she gets better looking with age but she's obviously one of the most like objectively beautiful people on the face of the planet but i think that's also that that, that speaks to her versatility that she is she's also very good at presenting herself as being kind of plain and ordinary and i don't know how she does that but somehow she can make a face <laughs> to the camera where it's like, oh yeah, she's just sort of a normal-looking girl, and yet the next moment she's stunning. Obviously in Monster, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously that was with the help of makeup, but there are ways of making Charlize Theron un- unattractive through Hollywood magic. They tried chopping her arm off and shaving her head for Mad Max, and that right. didn't even work. <laughs> she's still great. It is difficult. But, well, Mike, uh, you were saying that this is basically not her first role, but maybe her breakout role? Because this, I mean, she's basically... I mean, not basically. She is the female lead in this movie. She's third build behind Pacino and Keanu and hadn't been in a whole lot of stuff before this, right? And becomes a superstar after this? It was this and Cider House Rules, I think, that were the two ones that really launched her. Yeah, which were close together, too. It just seems like she kind of comes out of nowhere and is, like, just at the top for the rest of her career. Or at least, like, she hits Monster very soon, too. And then that really catapults her. Even Eon Flux isn't going to damage, you know, her career after that. But, yeah, I had only seen her in that movie Two Days in the Valley. And so this kind of is, like, one of the first things she's done. Yeah, I was looking at the chronology, and she was in a couple movies I'd heard of, but she was in, like, what was the... Oh, That Thing You Do, I said, but she's a really tiny role in that. This is basically, I think, the first thing she's ever really... Oh, it's def- it's it definitely th- after this, though. Okay. Yeah, and I think that it's well-deserved because of a lot of stuff what John was just saying about how she's able to portray this character who's gorgeous and by all means should be, you know, ruling this world with Keanu, <laughs> and yet she's able to convey this lack of confidence, schizophrenia, just mental degradation, and wear it so easily on screen for it just it comes off her so naturally maybe it's just a testament to that she's a great actress and so she got recognized early and she's been able to have a, a good long career you may need to consider Charlie's club as the next project in your endeavors here but uh 
Just throwing it out there. I'm okay with that. There'd be some real bad movies you'd be watching, but like The Astronaut's Wife. We could, we could watch Hancock. We could we could slowly do every Will Smith movie through the guise of other things. Like we did iRobot for Shia. We'll just do Hancock for Charlize. Every movie of his. It's a backdoor way of doing a Will Smith podcast. Just I've got to say, uh, the best depiction of the devil in recent memory is obviously Will Smith in Winter's Tale, where he plays oh my Satan. God. But he's just Will Smith. It's so weird. So I'm looking through my notes. Most of my notes are just about the plot of the movie, which I think we've covered pretty much. But I do want to make sure that we talk about this last, this final scene, which we've talked about a little bit. All 15 minutes of this are quotable, and it feels like Pacino (laughs) has like three monologues in this one scene, which is astounding. But I want to talk about it so that we can like weave in quotes from here, because I love this scene so much. This is the scene where like all the cards are laid out, right? About this is Pacino's, he's not pulling any punches anymore. I don't make things happen. Doesn't work like that. What did you do to Marianne? Free will. It's like butterfly wings. Once touched, they never get off the ground. No, I only set the stage. You pull your own strings. What did you do to Marianne? A gun? In here? God damn it! What did you do to my wife? On a scale of one to ten. Ten being the most depraved act of sexual theater known to man. One being your average Friday night run-through at the Lomax's household. I'd say, not to be immodest, Marianne and I got it on at about... Favon. Fuck you! Oh! 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 Got me! Got me! Yes! Wow! Oh, yes! Yes! Step on up, son! Come on, that's good! You gotta hold on to that fury. Yeah, that's the last thing to go. That's the final hiding place. It's the final fig leaf. So Charlize Theron kills herself because right. she says, Pacino raped me, da-da-da, he's the devil. He's like, For an entire afternoon. Right after that, Keanu's mom tells Keanu that she was in New York as like a young lady and met Pacino and they had a kid and that he... But does she know he's the devil? She doesn't know he's the devil. But that's your father. So but it's can like... You, hold on, can you imagine for a second that she met Pacino who was a waiter at the hotel? Can you imagine Pacino as a waiter? Like the devil? I mean, I'm sure it was maybe just like a one night thing. Yeah. But like Pacino as a waiter? All right, okay. Sorry, Mike. <laughs> you want some more water? What do you want? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> it's, it's not clear if she knew he's the devil, but for me, it was the psychological impact of seeing your wife slit her own throat and then learning out this guy manipulating your whole life as your father. It's like a double whammy. And then he wanders through the desolate streets of New York, which is a really interesting shot, which to me sort of symbolizes he's crossed over into some other unearthly realm of some kind. Ooh. Uh, and that's when he goes up to the penthouse and Pacino's waiting for him and he yeah and that's when he starts shooting him and it doesn't hurt him now do you think that he's shooting him does he know that Pacino is more than just a man or does he like, no I don't I think he has suspicions that he's not who he says he is but I don't think it's until he shoots him he then Pacino kind of comes on out with it that he realizes what he's really dealing with I think he understands that this is the guy who basically has descended his life into chaos, and, and he blames him for that. I, so Keanu's yeah. had his all-is-lost moment, and it doesn't matter now that he sort of has been betrayed by his mother, kind of, though through no fault of her own, really, and now that his wife is dead, that it doesn't matter. He, he might as well go to jail because he's got nothing left, and he's just going to kill Pacino and bring, hopefully, some kind of vengeance to the world. 
I mean, I took it as pure rage at that point. Like he was goading him to shoot him or something to prove a point to reveal himself in that manner or something. And to show Keanu that he has these tendencies in him. Like, look at you. You're a murderer and you didn't even know it. Like, you're about to find out so much you don't know about yourself in the next few minutes. This is just the tip of the iceberg. So it almost just felt to me like there needed to be like a catalyst for this conversation. That was it. Another thing that I love about the scene is that there are lines that are so corny, but then there are also great monologues in the Pacino chewing the scenery over the top where Keanu asks, what are you? And then Pacino says, I have so many names. And then Keanu says, Satan? He's just like, ah, call me dad. And like, that's so corny, but also perfect. Who are you? Who am I? Who are you? Never lost a case. Why? Why do you think? Because you're so fucking good. Yeah. But why? Because you're my father. I'm a little more than that, Kevin. Awfully hot in that courtroom, wasn't it? What's the game plan, Kevin? It was a nice run, Kev. Had to close out someday. Nobody wins them all. What are you? Oh, I have so many names. See, call me dad. In a different movie, that would be like a real groaner of a line, but here, like, you can't help but kind of applaud a little bit. I don't know if it's the delivery. I don't know if it's the buildup to that. I don't know if it's the whole aesthetic of everything, but that line just comes at the perfect, perfect time. Yeah, it's and it's a really good Satan moment because one of the things that I think gets overlooked sometimes in the whole like Satan lore is that one of the things that Satan is is annoying in a, in a very literal sort of sense, like a really charming kind of way. And I think that's a really sharp moment because he takes all the gravitas out of it, right? And he's like, yeah, whatever, call me dad, doesn't matter. And there's this, it's this kind of disarming, very human element to him saying that in that it's also just like you just want to you want to smack him, right? Because it's so... It's annoying that he says that. But Satan should be annoying. Not just evil, but frustrating, right? And to not give in to the moment where Keanu's like, you are Satan, right? Where he's being very kind of melodramatic and human. And he's <laughs> like, sure, you can call me dad, right? And I love that. I, I think that's... It's a very subtle, cleverly written line, but I think we shouldn't overlook what a great moment that is in terms of you know maintaining the notion of him as the devil in a, in a way that often gets... A, a lesser writer would just sort of overlook and be like, yes, ha-ha, you know, like, yeah-ha-ha, and stroke his beard and whatever. No, it's, he, he needs to be a jerk as well as evil. And what's also great is that it's charming, right? Like, he's kind of a charming guy, but what also I admire... And I don't know if admire is the right word, but the way that Pacino describes his mentality versus what God tells you to do through the Bible. Who are you carrying all those bricks for anyway? God? Is that it? God? Well, I tell you, let me give you a little inside information about God. God likes to watch. He's a prankster. Think about it. He gives man instincts he gives you this extraordinary gift and then what does he do i swear for his own amusement his own private cosmic gag reel he sets the rules in opposition 
It's the goof of all time. Look, but don't touch. Touch, but don't taste. Taste, don't swallow. <laughs> and while you're jumping from one foot to the next, what is he doing? He's laughing his sick fucking ass off. He's a tight ass. He's a sadist. He's an absentee landlord. Worship that never. And it's sort of the same thing that, going back to when you, ta- you mentioned The Witch, earlier this year, when The Witch was out in theaters, I went to a free screening of The Witch that was presented by the Satanic Church of whatever, and there were screenings all over the country. And so you saw the movie for free, and then you walked down the street. This was in Austin. You walked down the street to a bar, and then behind the bar, there was like an outdoor space, and there was a Satanic ritual. And the ritual was like, it was silly. Like, it was just, you know, it was over the top. But basically, the whole guiding purpose of Satanism is not down with God and down with this and down with that or like hail Satan, but it's just basically enjoy yourself, like enjoy life. And that's the same thing here that he's saying this in this great thing about where he, he ends it with God as an absentee landlord, but he calls God a prankster. He's like, look, he gave you all of this. You have ultimate possibility to do anything. And then he says, don't enjoy any of it. And that definition, like that description, that explanation is so perfect in like, when you think about how frustrating that is, you could do anything on here, but if you're supposed to be a good person, a good Christian, you can't do a lot of things because the Bible tells you not to. And looking at it through that lens, it's like, oh yeah, obviously this guy is crazy and the definition of evil, but also weirdly, he has a point. Yeah, he does. The devil always has a point, and that's one of the consistent themes in all devil literature and in the Bible. The devil always has a point. You know, in fact, when the devil offers all of humankind to Jesus, right? Like, his argument is a perfectly valid one. It's like, you want to be king? I'll make you king, right? Here you go. Have all of it. But the opposite side of that coin is that, you know, if Jesus accepts, then everything that he believes about mankind, he has to deny he believes it, right? So if he gives in and says, yeah, I'm going to be, I'll, I'll be the ruler of all of mankind, then he robs mankind of their free will. And the very thing that he sort of presents as being the gift of God uh, is no longer the gift of God. So there's always like a, like a catch-22. But the devil always comes in with rational arguments. It's never, let's just make chaos, let's just do something bad for the sake of doing something bad. And what you say about the Church of Satan is, you know, there's, there's a saying in Luciferian Satanism, which is the most common form of it, the saying that the punishment for sin is enjoyment, right? That if, if, you, if you sin, the, the suffering you're going to feel is that you will enjoy what you just did. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and yeah, there, there is there is a, an obvious logic to that. But again, can you create an ordered society? Can you have any kind of functioning structure and still engage in that? And again, this, this goes back to the challenge that the legal system presents to us. Is it possible to have an ethical legal system? And is it possible to have a bunch of people who enjoy their lives to the fullest and those don't come into conflict with each other, where you end up causing suffering to other people through your enjoyment. Ultimately, that is the punishment that the devil takes. If you simply cave into your baser instincts and fully engage with the world and just take everything and enjoy it, you will be causing suffering to others somehow. And that is where the devil sort of takes his, takes his pay, right? 
So yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a it's a great point. It's really interesting. I only have one more note about this movie, and it has nothing to really do with what we're talking about. So I'll save it for a little bit. But Mike, what what else do you want to talk about in terms of anything with this movie? We've talked about a lot, but also not a lot. And I feel like <laughs> we're reaching a kind of a good point to wrap things up in a way. But is there anything else, like any other characters or through lines or points or whatever that you wanted to make sure we discussed? I just had two small ones. The first one I wanted to actually ask our guest about was the inclusion of voodoo within this movie which just (laughs) seemed kind of in there without even any consideration it's just like why is it depicted as evil and in league with the devil and is there any basis in that in fact no but in sort of folklore yes voodoo is merely the native religion of the haitians and and of the sort of hispaniola region of the world but like so many kind of native religions it took on a characteristic of evil largely because of like the southern christians mainly the sort of french catholics in new orleans because of the conflict between the sort of native haitian population there and and the emerging you know french colonists and that sort of thing and so a lot of the things that we associate with voodoo are not voodoo at all but kind of a a form of fringe witchcraft that was engaged in by some voodoo practitioners the sort of through line of this is kind of complicated but um the the voodoo doll for instance like when people think voodoo they think putting pins in in dolls right Um, or nails on tongues as in the case of this movie which yeah that has nothing to do with voodoo but it kind of it came from a cultural paranoia that emerged out of the French South, mostly in New Orleans. There's a whole like that's a that's a whole different. There could be books written about that and the kind of superstition of that part of the world and how it and how it evolved. So yeah, I do actually have a problem with the idea of voodoo as a stand-in for like the practice of evil <laughs> witchcraft because it's it's a total misconception as to what voodoo is. But I you know I'll forgive it because. It's it's not without some kind of historical context that there is this paranoid fear of voodoo that emerged out of a, a particular sect of Christianity from a particular place and time in the world. So, but no, voodoo guys is not bad. What I like about that scene is that it brings back Delroy Lindo from Feeling Minnesota. So, I mean, I always I always love to see a little Keanu action. And what's weird about this is he's uncredited in this movie for some reason. I don't. Maybe he didn't like his portrayal, or maybe he just sort of wanted to fly under the radar. I don't know. But I had to really hunt on IMDb for his. Like I had to control F for his name because I was like, where is this guy? And finally found him at the bottom. So that's my little two cents about that. What was your other point, Mike? So like Keanu brings the gun into Pacino's office at the end and shoots him a bunch of times. Now. I didn't count how many shots he shot him with, but did he have enough bullets left to kill himself and shoot himself in the head in the end? It just seemed like the screenwriter either lost track or didn't (laughs) care, or it was just like he's got a gun in his waist belt. But I thought it was kind of short-sighted of the devil not to foresee anything like that happening also. Yeah, I just wondered if if you guys picked up on the gun thing. That's a great point. I never did think about that. And now I kind of want to watch that scene again. I'm going to angrily squeeze off bullets, but still somehow, in my rage, keep composed enough to save one bullet in my gun to put in my own head. Interesting point. I don't know. Watch that scene again and and (laughs) ask a gun expert what kind of gun that is and if it has enough bullets. And I'm inclined to say that because of the way that a lot of morality scenarios, right, play out in this movie, I'm inclined to say that it's clever enough 
that they did actually know what kind of gun it was, and that in fact there were enough bullets left, and that they specifically used this kind of a gun. I could be totally wrong, and it could be just complete Hollywood, writer's crutch, whatever, right? Who cares? Guns can fire unlimited <laughs> bullets, right? It's, it's a movie. But I want to believe that the movie is clever enough that it actually thought that out ahead of time. So, okay, Mike, so we need to do another episode of this where we bring on a lawyer, and we need another episode, <laughs> like a little addendum, where we bring on a gun expert. So we have to do Charlize Club and yep. Pacino Club. Yep. You can do this you, two more we, times. You should, you should have a standby gun expert for all Keanu <laughs> movies, by the way. Because, We're going like, to need him at the Matrix. Well, John uh, Wick is gonna, like, you're going to need, like, okay, really? Can you do that? Right. I mean, yeah. The Matrix you don't necessarily need because you can, you can explain why. Oh, yeah, it's all in a program. Uh, because they're just, right, they're, they're ones and zeros guns. They're not they're not. Guns. In our new Can America, really we'll definitely be able to find a gun expert. And also, President-elect Trump is name-dropped in this movie, and they also filmed in his apartment. Shut up. So, oh my god. Is that really true? Oh my god. All right. The solid gold apartment that belongs to Craig T. Nelson is, in fact, Trump's apartment. Yep. And at one point, when at the party, like, oh, Donald Trump was supposed to be here, but he had a client, a biz- like a meeting, a client meeting or whatever. If he was in this movie... This should become our national movie. <laughs> the, like, required viewing of all children for the rest of time, or at least the next four years, while we live out this dystopian nightmare. My last note about this movie is that it was originally supposed to be made in 94, with Joel Schumacher directing and Brad Pitt as the star, but it never happened, obviously. And then apparently also considered for that role were Edward Norton, Christian Slater, and John Cusack. Like, there's no talk of who would have been the Pacino role. I think they were all considered for the Keanu role. I want to see the John Cusack and Sean Connery <laughs> devil's advocate. Wouldn't it be point. great if there was, like, computer software that let you somehow... Recap so Okay, so, the, yeah. so there's a movie that came out a couple years ago called The Congress with Robin Wright. And that movie is set oh, in yeah, the future yeah, where yeah. she kind of sells her digital self. She plays she herself, gets, like, right? It's she like plays her... herself. Yeah, she plays yeah. actress Robin Wright. And she gets scanned into this computer and sort of, you know, gets like whatever nor- she would normally get for a movie. She instead gets like 5 or 10% or whatever. I don't, it doesn't matter. Like a fraction of that. But she doesn't have to act. Like, technology is advanced so that the computer has her likeness and they can convert her to any age. So basically, digital Robin Wright becomes like this massive movie star. And that movie is great and you should watch that. And that's a draft house films released, and you know it's good, and it's it's, it's thought provoking and interesting, and becomes an animated movie two thirds way through because why not? But I would love in a world where that kind of technology exists, if you could be like, okay, movie, I want to see The Devil's Advocate with Sean Connery and John Cusack, or you could just pick any actor for any role, and somehow the technology exists where they just get into that movie. Like, that would be we, we would We would finally get the Nick Nolte Han Solo and the Tom Selleck Indiana Jones. And, like... <laughs> Guys, future historians are laughing at us right now while listening to this that they just uncovered. Like... <laughs> Can you believe oh, that three story. guys on a podcast in December 2016 accurately yeah. predicted yes. what our technology of 2040 is all about? Yeah. What a complete waste of time technology that would be. But, like, <laughs> but there's very few things I would rather have than that. Thing. That would be amazing. Yeah, it would. Well, any other last-minute notes or otherwise, we're going to bid John farewell, because he'll be back in two weeks for The Matrix. Yeah. And then back Ooh. a few weeks after that for the Animatrix and Reloaded and Revolutions, then again for Constantine. So, John, any other notes or any, any other thoughts about the movie that you want to mention before we wrap up? No, but good movie. And yeah, read Paradise Lost and, and watch this movie. But don't just watch this movie because, you know, you should be smart as well. <laughs> 
Mike, any last thoughts? No, I'm good as well. Well, thank you very much, John, for joining us. Like I said, you'll be back in two weeks for The Matrix, which is my favorite movie and the whole reason we kind of did Keanu Club. So I can't (laughs) wait to talk about that movie. It might be an extra long episode. Might be an extra long episode. So for all things Keanu Club, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub. You can see all the episodes we've done already. You can find the other shows on the network. You can follow us on Twitter, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, all sorts of fun things to do at those two places. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was John Brooks, and we'll see you next time on Keanu Club. Free will, right?